Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. Born in 1921, he was well known throughout the world for his writings and godly influence in the global church. He founded Langham Partnership in response to the growing needs he heard from churches and pastors in the majority world. Stott passed away July 27th in 2011. He leaves behind a legacy that continues to expand through the power of God's Word, carried by scholars and pastors equipped by Langham to preach the transforming truths of the Bible. Today, John Stott presents a study of John 20, verses 30 and 31, and the Word made flesh. There are many Jesuses in the religious supermarket of the world. There is, for example, Jesus the clown of Godspell, and Jesus Christ superstar, the disillusioned celebrity. There is Jesus the radical, Jesus the revolutionary, Jesus the urban guerrilla, Jesus the socialist, Jesus the capitalist, and Jesus, the founder of modern business. Did you ever hear of him? There are many Jesuses on offer in the world's religious supermarket. But I've been suggesting during these Sunday mornings that the authentic Jesus is the Jesus portrayed in the four Gospels, and that God in his providence has given us these four portraits of Christ in which the four faces of Jesus are revealed. So we began with Matthew, who portrays Jesus as the Christ of Scripture, the fulfillment of centuries of Old Testament expectation. Mark portrays him as the suffering servant of the Lord, who went to the cross and calls us to take up our cross, and follow him. Luke portrays him as the saviour of the world, whose compassion reaches out to every human being, and particularly the dropouts of human society. And today we come to John, who portrays Jesus as the eternal word made flesh, who became a real human being in Jesus of Nazareth, and manifested his divine glory on earth. It's well known, of course, that whereas Matthew begins his story with the genealogy of Jesus, tracing his descent back to Abraham, and whereas Mark begins his with the ministry of John the Baptist, and Luke goes back to the stories of the conception, the birth, and the infancy of Jesus, John goes back farther still. John goes back to the very beginning. In the beginning, he says, was the Word. And this Word, this personal expression of the Father's being, was with God, and the Word was God. He was also the agent of creation. Nothing was created but what was created through him. And he's never left the world he's made, He is the light and the life of all humankind. And it was this eternal, 
personal word of God who one day became flesh, became a human being on the first Christmas day. It was not now a visitation. He'd often visited the world before. Now it was an incarnation. He assumed our physical and psychological humanness with all its frailty and its vulnerability and its limitations. The God who had made human beings himself became a human being. The God, the creator, assumed the weakness of his creatures. The eternal one entered time. The all-powerful one made himself vulnerable. The all-holy exposed himself to human temptations. And the immortal died. It was an amazing, an absolutely amazing act of self-humbling and self-sacrifice. And with that introduction we ask ourselves, what is the purpose of John in writing his gospel? What did the Holy Spirit have in mind in choosing, fashioning, equipping, commissioning John to write this gospel of his? Well, he tells us. In a way, his is the only gospel that tells us precisely what his purpose has been, which is evangelistic. I wonder if you'd like now to take your Bible and turn to the final, the penultimate chapter of John's Gospel, and I want to read to you chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. John says he isn't intending to write a biography of Jesus. His account is not in any way comprehensive. There are many other things that he did and said which are not recorded in the Gospel. But, verse 31, these are written, this, my selection, John says, these are written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in and through his name. So here are three stages that I think we can quite easily detect. John's ultimate purpose is that the reader will find life, new life, eternal life in and through Jesus Christ. But in order to receive that life, moving back one step, it is necessary to believe in Christ. And in order to believe in Christ, Stepping back one stage further, John has selected certain signs which bear witness to Christ in order that people may believe. So John selected and recorded certain signs in order that the reader might believe, in order that believing readers might find life in and through Christ. So testimony, John's testimony leads to faith, and faith leads to life. And in that simple statement, you have really a summary of the Gospel of John. John sees his Gospel as testimony to Christ. It is almost as if the fourth Gospel is or takes place in a court room. The whole thing is a kind of court scene, and witness after witness after witness are assembled 
in order to testify to Christ. And this succession of witnesses begins with John the Baptist. Because you heard it in the lesson read just now, John says there was a man from God whose name was John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify to the light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light in order that people might see and believe and be saved. And John goes on to record the witness of John the Baptist, who said, Behold the Lamb of God, and this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and so on. Now this witness to Jesus Christ, that is summarized in the Gospel of John, was visual as well as verbal. The witness was a combination of words and works. The words interpreting the works, and the works dramatizing the words. Now many scholars believe that John deliberately assembled seven of these miracles or witnesses to Jesus. I'm sure you know, don't you, that in the New Testament there are three different words, Greek words that are used for miracles. Sometimes they're called powers, dunamice, because they are expressions of the creative power of Almighty God. Sometimes they're called wonders because they evoke wonder and amazement in those who see them being performed. But sometimes, and especially in John's Gospel, they are called signs. But more important than their material phenomena is their spiritual significance. Each miracle you see, was an acted parable. It was a dramatized claim of Jesus Christ through which his glory was revealed and seen. So each of these signs contributed to the witnesses that John is assembling and each contributes to the portraits of Jesus that he is painting. So I think we've got time quickly, you know, you're going to need a fair amount of uh, ledger domain, I believe it's called, a digital dexterity, you know, if you're going to follow in the Bible. But I think we've got time, if you don't mind, to look at these seven, quickly. One, Jesus turned water into wine. This is John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1. And he turned water into wine as a sign of the claim he made to inaugurate the new order. This was the wedding, the wedding reception at Cana of Galilee, and the wine ran out, very embarrassing and uncomfortable. But John tells us there were six huge stone water pots standing there, which were a symbol of Judaism. They stood there for ritual purification, so they symbolized the old order of Judaism. Jesus turned the water into wine because in and with him the kingdom of God, the new order had come. As water replaced wine, as wine replaced water, excuse me, so the new order replaced the old. And verse 11, this first sign, John says, Jesus did and revealed his glory and his disciples believed on him. And the same basic truth about the new order is further elaborated. 
when he cleansed the temple at the end of chapter 2. When he told Nicodemus he had to be born again if he could ever enter the kingdom of God or the new order. And when he offered the Samaritan woman the water of life. All that is teaching the same thing. Jesus inaugurated the new order, the kingdom of God. Now the second and the third signs we're going to take together. Jesus performed two healing miracles as signs of his claim to be able to give human beings a new life. The first healing miracle, chapter 4, verse 43, he healed the son of a nobleman or a royal official in Capernaum. And verse 54 says, this was the second sign which Jesus did. And the other healing miracle is the beginning of chapter 5, where he healed a poor invalid who'd been sick for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Now after these two signs there comes a discourse of Jesus in which he explains the meaning of what he has done. He records how Jesus claimed that the Father had given him authority to bestow life and to execute judgment. And both judgment and life-giving are divine prerogatives. And Jesus had been given that authority by the Father. Now the fourth sign is the feeding of the 5,000 with five little barley loaves and a couple of sardines. The feeding of the 5,000, you may know, is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. But it's only John who goes on beyond the miracle to record a discourse of Jesus in which he says, chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. I fed your bodies, that I can fill your souls. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, there is a hunger in the human heart that none but Christ can satisfy. And there is a thirst that none but Christ can quench. Have you experienced that, my friend? This is what Christ was claiming in the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 was an acted parable of his claiming to satisfy human hunger. Now, fifthly, Jesus walked on water. Chapter 6, verse 16 following, is a sign of his claim that the kingdom of God had arrived and even the powers of nature were now subordinate to his rule. So when the disciples got into the boat on one side of the Sea of Galilee, intending to cross over to the other, it was already dark. The sun had set, night had fallen, and a strong wind blew up, as often happens in the Lake of Galilee, and it uh, whipped up the waters into a frenzied storm. And not only that, but the disciples were alone. In the darkness, in the storm, alone and seemingly abandoned, suddenly Jesus came to them walking on the water. They were first terrified. Until he said to them with his voice of calm, Don't be afraid, it is I. 
And then the storm ceased, and they were at the shore. Even the wind and the waves and the waters obeyed him. He is the Lord of nature. That's five. Six. In chapter nine, we read that Jesus gave sight to a man who had been born blind as a sign of his claim that he was the light of the world. And just as he gave sight, physical sight to this man, blind from birth, so he can give spiritual sight because he is the light of the world. Chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world and he who follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And as John tells the story, he deliberately draws a contrast between the Pharisees and the man born blind. The Pharisees had their physical sight, but they were blind as bats spiritually. The poor man had been blind physically from birth, but he was given his spiritual sight as well as his physical sight. Until he could say one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I can see. Which brings us to the seventh of these signs. Jesus raised Lazarus, who'd been dead four days, as a sign of his claim to be the resurrection and the life. I love the story of Lazarus and his raising from the dead, which is told in chapter 11 of John's Gospel. Partly because in this story... The strong emotions of the word made flesh are revealed. I wonder if you know that in verse uh, 33, when he came to the graveside of Lazarus and was face to face with death, the Greek word means he snorted. Snorted with anger and with indignation in the face of death which is the enemy of God. And then two verses further on, verse 35, he wept. He wept for the bereaved sisters, Martha and Mary, who'd lost their beloved brother. So he snorted with anger. He wept with sorrow. Such were the strong emotions of the word made flesh. And then he went on to say that he'd come to destroy death that had brought such grief into the household of Lazarus. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Have you ever reflected on that? Jesus is claiming that because of his conquest of death, by his death and resurrection, death has become a trivial episode in our pilgrimage to God. Of course it's still an enemy, It's called in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed. But what is it now for those who believe in Jesus who has conquered death? What Jesus says is that he is the life of the living and he is the resurrection of the dead. For those who live will never die, never die eternally. But for those who die, they will live again. The resurrection and the life. Well, there are seven signs. John says he selected them deliberately. He chose them. He recorded them. Each one dramatizing one of the claims 
of the Word made flesh. We could sum it up by saying this is the Jesus to whom John bears witness and this is the Jesus in whom we believe. He inaugurates the new order, the kingdom of God. He's both the life giver and the judge. He is the bread of life who satisfies human hunger. He has control over the powers of nature. He's the light of the world and the resurrection and the life. But have you noticed we've only got up to chapter 11. John's gospel is actually in two parts. Part one is the book of the signs that we've been looking at. Part two is the book of the cross from chapter 12 onwards. For now John moves on to another side of his witness, not only to the power and the authority of Christ in the first 11 chapters, but to the weakness and uh, the humility of Christ in the second part of the book. To begin with, we see his humility and his self-sacrifice as he rises from the Last Supper, takes off his outer garment, girds himself with an apron like a common slave, gets on his hands and knees, and goes round washing their feet. Their Lord became their servant. And then that leads on into the cross. Because, according to John, the greatest glorification of Jesus Christ was the cross. The cross was the glorification. The glorification means that he was revealed in the fullness of his divine glory. Not only in those signs of authority and power, but above all in the love and the humility of the cross. So when those Greeks came to uh, Philip and uh, Andrew and said we want to see Jesus and they came to Jesus and said here are these Greeks who want to see me see you do you remember what Jesus said the time has come that is the Greeks are asking to see me at the very right moment the time has come for me the son of man to be glorified and then immediately goes on Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it multiplies. So you see, it is by death that Jesus would be fully glorified. The cross is a kind of theater in which the divine human glory of Jesus is displayed. I think it's wonderful. All through the Gospel, John bearing witness to Jesus in signs of power and in the great sign of love and humility. Well, we've got a few more moments, I think, and I would like, if I may, to suggest we look back over these four Sunday mornings. And I, well, we've looked at the four faces of Jesus Christ, and I want to make a suggestion as to one way in which you might find it helpful to remember these four. Mind you, what I'm going to give you is speculative, John himself doesn't uh, give it to us in so many words, but I think it is helpful. It concerns the four dimensions of the saving purpose of God, namely the length, breadth, depth, and height of his love. In Matthew, it's the length that is emphasized because he depicts the Christ of Scripture who looks back over the long, long centuries 
of Old Testament expectation. In Luke, it's the breath, because he depicts a Savior of the world whose arms are outstretched on the cross in order to embrace the whole of humanity and especially the dropouts and the rejects of human society. The breadth of his love is indicated by Luke. In Mark, it's death. For he depicts the suffering servant of the Lord and looks down to the depths of humiliation, agony, and suffering which he endured on the cross. And in John, I think it is height. But he depicts the word made flesh who looks up to the heights from which he came in order to become flesh and to which he will take us and intends to bring us in the end. I think no wonder Paul, in the third chapter of Ephesians, in his great prayer, prays that we may know these dimensions, that we may comprehend with all the people of God what is the length, breadth, depth, and height of his love. And these dimensions which some of the early church fathers saw symbolized in the shape of the cross. So I conclude. How is it with you and your Christian life, friend? Are you making good progress? Have you begun it? Are you going ahead like a house on fire? Do you know I believe the greatest thing we need if we are to grow into maturity in Christ is a clearer, fuller, sharper, richer vision of Him in His glory. As the Christ of Scripture, as the suffering servant, as the saver of the world, as the Word made flesh, and in many other ways behind. Dr. J.I. Packer in his great book, Knowing God, says that we are pygmy Christians because we have a pygmy God. I want to change it a wee bit and say we're pygmy Christians because we have a pygmy Christ. How can we expect to grow into maturity in Christ if our vision of him is of the clown of God's spell or Jesus Christ superstar or Jesus a mere man or Jesus only a prophet one more in the long succession of the centuries if our vision of Christ is as low as that then I'm afraid our Christian life will be equally low if only we could see him as the evangelist saw him. If only we could see him as the four gospel writers saw him. If only we could do justice to his four faces. If only we could grasp the fullness of his divine human identity. By then we would humble ourselves before him and begin to give him the honor that is due to his name. Once upon a time I have read there was a sculptor who sculpted a statue of Jesus Christ. So beautiful was it, so remarkable was it, that people came from great distances in order to see this statue of Christ. When they arrived, they would walk round and round it. They would look at it from this angle and from that. And yet still somehow its grandeur eluded them. So they would go up to the sculptor himself and ask, 
What is the best perspective from which to view your statue of the Christ? And the sculptor replied, there is only one angle from which this statue can be truly seen. You must kneel. Let's pray. So either physically or symbolically we kneel before Christ. The Messiah of Scripture, the suffering servant, the Saviour of the world, the Word made flesh. Let us worship him in a moment of silence. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask your forgiveness for times when we, your, our vision of you has grown dim. We've neither seen you as you are nor brought to you the worship that is due to your great name. And as we ask forgiveness for the past, we pray for the future. Lord Jesus, make yourself to me an ever-bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh than in the sweetest earthly tie. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.